Welcome to Transparency with Diana B, a podcast from wealthmanagement.com focused on advisors' personal well-being and healing. In this podcast, we explore some of the deepest struggles and hardships that many advisors face and bring these issues out into the open so that others may find healing. Join us for this journey where we explore ways to overcome the stresses and anxieties as Diana draws from years of expertise and guest experts to manage the personal challenges of advisors. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of Transparency with Diana B, a podcast by WealthManagement.com. My name is Diana Britton, and I'm the managing editor of WealthManagement.com. For those of you who are new to the podcast, each episode focuses on a personal development issue facing financial advisors and financial services professionals. Guests join me to talk about their journey dealing with the struggle and how they ultimately found healing. And my guest today is a CEO of technology startup Planswell in Toronto, a financial planning engine for financial advisors, and recently celebrated its its one-year anniversary of going into the U.S. advisor market, um, Eric Arnold. Eric, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Diana, thanks for having me. Yeah, so I think this is going to be a good one. Um, you know, obviously the, the title of this podcast is transparency and I think Eric is, uh, you know, just a complete open book about his past. If you look at his bio uh, on his webpage on, on Plansville's webpage, his, his bio says he failed out of college. He got fired from two companies. He failed at nine startups, lost everything on a bad investment, um, and so I, I think that this is going to definitely be, be a good fit for, for this podcast. Um, so this is, I know this is the second attempt at growth for Planswell. Um, it, was, it was founded in 2015. In 2018, Planswell was named number 11 on LinkedIn's list of the 25 most sought after startups in Canada. And by late 2019, business uh, seemed to be humming. The firm had a mortgage brokerage, an insurance brokerage, an automated investment product, and was in the middle of another funding round. And then some accusations of sexual harassment within the company ranks surfaced, and investors pulled out of that funding round, and the firm had to fold up shop. Um, and about 60 employees lost their jobs. Or Eric, you can correct me if that's wrong, but uh, we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about that later. Um, but Eric, I just I wanted to start by, let's go back to your roots a little bit, because um, you know, it's clear that you have a very entrepreneurial spirit, a passion for you know, try, uh, trying to figure out ways to make money. How did that develop in your early years when you were younger? I think the first kind of memory of of the value of money uh, or the, my ability to make it. I, was, I had this paper route when I was 10 and it was terrible, uh, but they, they brought out this product where I could sell coupon booklets door to door on my paper route for, I think it was $5 and I got to keep three. And, uh, and I found that I was making way more money selling coupon booklets uh, than I was delivering newspapers. Um, hmm. So I think that's, that's when I opened my first bank account and yeah, I kind of fell in love with, with B2C sales and, uh, and yeah, just the hustle. Yeah, I mean, I was, I was probably just riding my bike around at that age, like not really thinking about money. So I know when you were 17 years old, 
so a big, you know, family tragedy struck. Tell us about that and and what happened and and you know how did um, your family sort of change after that? Yeah, when I was seventeen, uh, my dad died in a car accident. Um, it was a pretty like horrific um, event. My grandmother also passed away, and, the, and my dog in the, in the car accident. My sister was in the car and survived. She was mm-hmm. nine at the time, and so that was like a lot of big changes for our family. And uh, I talk about it in, in kind of my origin story of, uh, in the context of like wealth management of, of like I grew up pretty financially stressed up until 17 and then that, that accident caused a, an AD&D policy, so accidental death and dismemberment um, that my dad had at work um, to pay out. And so my sister got mm-hmm. to grow up going to like private school and just like a different environment versus like I, I kind of knew when when grocery day was every other Thursday and that, that kind of thing growing up. I, we, we weren't poor. We had uh, like a, a fractional kind of cottage ownership and, and stuff like this, but, uh, but it's just like the financial stress was always there. And that was kind of what motivated me to, to see, you know, how I could make more money. Like I remember I was like sealing our driveway when I was in high school, like putting that, like rolling that like black, like paint on your driveway. And, and one of our neighbors walked by and was kind of chirping me. He was like, did you buy that at like Home Depot? Like, what'd you pay for that? Like 20 bucks? Like I could have got it for you for like five. And I was like, why? He's like, well, you know, I work at the company. Like I can, I can get them for $5. I was like, well, how many mm. could you get? <laughs> like we ended up mm-hmm. having like eight kids, like knocking on doors, like sealing driveways the next weekend. So. Hmm. Yeah. Um, I mean, what, how did that, tragedy hit you i guess emotionally and and i know that um you know you you said you were homeless and addicted at one point after that um so tell us what happened sort of walk us through how that affected yeah. you after like after the accident it was a, like a very like rough time if you if you could imagine you probably can't hopefully you can't um but uh, i was in uh, 11th grade uh, when that happened and so like my my last year of high school after that uh, was was pretty much a write-off and uh, just like a giant mess and so I was like out with you know with the kids doing doing drugs and all that kind of stuff and on the lunch breaks and it was uh, it was a rough scene for sure and eventually like just kind of left my house and kind of surfed around for for most of that year uh, pretty pretty lost and then had the like the most amazing opportunity to go to a rehab down in Florida uh, and I spent three months there and then came back and got an apartment, got a job working at Starbucks, uh, Union Station in Toronto, the busiest Starbucks in the world. And uh, and was able to like finish high school at that point and, and get into university and start studying at York University and and uh, started a window cleaning company and started making a lot of money cleaning windows and eventually dropped out of York University to start a tea company. But uh but yeah, I kind of came out of that and, and was a lot better off uh, because of it, I think. Yeah. And I guess, where did that lead you after that? Um, I know that you, um, you know, you had several startups. You said, I think, nine that failed or tell us about yeah. that. You know, how, what did you sort of learn from these failures, I guess? Well, I think one of the big learnings is how to get to the point where, you know, if something's going to really work and be a good idea without having to risk too much. So like the nine startups, meaning like we built nine, you know, somewhat of a, like, you know, a product that works that was getting some kind of revenue or some kind of tests, but without having to really take on investor money, I can, that's kind of like a big kind of line in the sand. As soon as you take a dollar from an investor, you're committed for, 
I think on average, like seven years or something like this, like you gotta be really serious about it. But so we built a lot of stuff to test and, uh, and had like a platform for private lessons. And we had like a hypnosis, weight loss, audio streaming service after I met a hypnotist on a cruise ship that had this cool weight loss thing. Uh, we had an independent music distribution company for independent artists to have their songs socially curated. That was back in like 2009 when like Napster was owned by Best Buy, I think. But all of these things cost like ten, twenty thousand dollars, and and, uh, and I, my co-founder and I, Scott, um, would uh, would just kind of self fund these, and I would work kind of intermittently at like sales jobs, selling cars and stuff, and and uh, and you know building my family. My wife and I have been together since high school, and wow. uh, started having kids. That's in incredible. Two thousand fourteen. So it's uh, yeah, it's we, we've done we've done really well with real estate. We've flipped a few houses and, and built like basement apartment uh, rental incomes. And I think, you know, always having that baseline of, OK, my house mortgage is paid for. Like I can take kind of these risks is, is pretty important. Yeah. Tell us about the um, hypnosis weight loss company. <laughs> what, what how did that come about? Or you said you, uh, so, uh, you met someone on a cruise ship. I love cruises. I can't wait to get back on cruises. We've, my <laughs> wife and I have been on 17 cruises together, um, wow. mostly almost all of them before having kids. This is what I used to, I, I ran this window cleaning company and in like three months I'd make like $40,000 um, wow. employing like 20 kids and selling, you know, doing re residential window cleaning. And then so the, the season ends in June and then we would spend all of July and August like blowing all the money on, on cruises and then come back and have to clean some more windows in the fall to go back to school. But, uh, I was on this cruise and, and this was back in the day before internet or anything uh, was on cruises. And uh, there's a hypnotist, they bring in these like performers, right? But they make you go for the whole week as a performer. Usually you only have one good show, sometimes two, but they make you do like three shows. And so the third show usually is not very good. And at the, at the end of the week, after everybody was like quacking like chickens and stuff, his third show was on, weight loss which was cool so i went and checked it out it was actually really quite interesting and at the end of the show there's this lineup down the hall to buy his cds for 150 dollars and i was fascinated by this and so i, I waited till the line was gone i went up to him and i was like hey you ever try selling this on the internet and he's like what well, you know what's the internet i live on cruise ships and i'm like well well, I think we, I think we could do it. Like I was like, you know, there's a 99% chance it won't work, but in the 1% chance that it does, you know, this could be a huge success story. And so he gave me the CDs and and said, you know, have at it. And uh, we made a licensing deal and built a whole kind of company around it. That one that one failed because we went to market and I wasn't aware about the like prior to like in 2006 and seven, there was a big wave of acai berry colon cleanses and like basically laxative pills that help you with weight loss or whatever. And there was all these scams happening where they kept changing the name of the company and like Visa and MasterCard couldn't figure out as like playing whack-a-mole. And so eventually the credit card companies had put a ban on uh, subscription weight loss, anything on the internet. And, and we're talking to our credit card copies. We're like, we, we have to be able, this has to be a subscription. It's an audio streaming thing. And, uh, and you know, we're not selling like pills. Like it's not like, it's nothing to do with that. And they're like, well, that, that's worse. Like you're not even delivering a product. Like we're going to get so many chargebacks. How it's like, you can't do it. You can only do a straight sale. And uh, and to do a one time sale, it wasn't uh, economical. So we had to shut that one down, but uh, it was it was a fun run. And I, I lost like 30 pounds. And it was like, I still think <laughs> about some of the weight, uh, the, the hypnosis kind of, uh, mantras but uh yeah it was fun mm, that's interesting so how did you come to 
to uh, create plans well? What's sort of the backstory there? So I, I was doing these startups and a lot of them were centered around digital marketing. Like we had one of the top converting lead gen pages for weight loss with the hypnosis company. We just couldn't convert it on the credit card. So trying to charge them like a hundred dollars or whatever for audio streaming. But uh, we were running ads on like dating sites and all sorts of stuff. And it was, it was really interesting. But throughout all of these companies, the focus was really digital marketing. And then also I was working as an affiliate for other people's companies doing like running digital ads. So like I helped Groupon expand into a few different countries um, in 2010 and uh, early 2011. And that was, that was like the peak of my earnings career too. That was amazing. And then that kind of dried up after they IPO'd and that was kind of the end of the, the daily deal wave. And I'd been advertising for all of their competitors running the exact same ad campaigns. And so I was looking for my next thing to do. And I liked doing kind of intermittently in between startup ideas where I would lose all my money. I would go take a job and, and try and make some money. And I was looking at it and I found out that like financial advisors can actually make a really good income. You don't need a degree. I, I was like fairly unemployable. And, uh, and, and so I thought I'd, give that a try. And I, I remember I joined uh, one of the Canadian kind of big bank brokers, uh, high net worth focus um, in 2011. And, and it was actually quite easy to get the job. I was kind of surprised. It came with a nice salary and uh, and then commission and whatnot. And, uh, and I remember getting there and the vibe just being, you know, go get 300 clients. And I'm like, okay, like this week or today. And they're like, no, 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 in your life. <laughs> it was like, okay, how do I, how do you do that? Like, what, what? And they're like, well, you know, throw spaghetti against the wall, see what sticks, and activity's good. And I'm like, are you t- telling me that there's no repeatable process to acquiring new clients? Like, after 150 years in this business, you haven't figured that out? They're like, yep. And I'm like, okay, cool. So can I like y- use these landing pages and like mock up websites that I made for like my interview? They're like, we like your spirit. But you can't use that. <laughs> what what yeah. if we told you you could just use the phone and the phone book? And I, 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 in my in my memory of that conversation with like the head of the the whole th- company, I picture him having like an actual phone book on his desk that he like taps his hand on. I don't think he actually did, but, but it was like, would you still want to do it? And I'm like, yeah, sure, I'll do it. And so I, I got to go on this kind of really neat anthropological journey, trying to learn why that was the case, and and you know trying to see if there was a way to do it better. Yeah. And I mean, now you, Merrill, Merrill banned cold calling, right? It's, it's, uh, it's interesting the way the industry is going. So, uh, so tell us about the, the beginning of Planswell. What, you know, tell us about how you created it and mm-hmm. the inspiration, mm-hmm. I guess. Yes. Yeah, the, the branch I was at was actually a former Merrill branch that had been bought by a Canadian company, but, um, yeah, so I was doing that for, for a couple of years and I was doing the seminar thing and, you know, the things that I was allowed to do. And I had a, a team in the Philippines cold calling everybody in Toronto, inviting them to cheaper restaurants. Um, I had like a $10 deal at, at La Mexicana on Bathurst Street, like just like a cheap Mexican restaurant. So I wanted to see if like you really needed to spend on the, the big steak dinners. And and I got the cost down. It just wasn't incredibly scalable. And I still had this kind of itch in the back of my mind that like, I think we could probably do this using digital marketing if we were allowed. And then uh, after about two years, I was like, oh, I'm just gonna do it anyways. And so, so it was like a little side project. And and it was like, well, what if we could get consumers to give us all of the information required to build an entire financial plan? And 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 you could do it over the internet without even talking to them. And you could skip the, the learning event, like the seminar, you could skip the first meeting at the coffee shop to collect the documents. Like, what if you could just go right into the first conversation and the plan's already done? And it's like, well, that, that would be the greatest thing in the world, but like nobody's going to give you all their most personal financial details. And so we mocked up kind of a, a really basic test. This was back in like 2012 
and uh and it and it worked amazingly well like turns out people want to know when they're going to retire what their income is going to be and that nobody knows the answers to these things and if you offer to to answer it um they'll they'll give you all their information and uh and so, so we were doing that and it was working incredibly well the challenge was we have to actually build the plan. Like you still have to use the, the you know, analog financial planning software that advisors typically still use today. And for, for a large portion of them, like a typical advisor is not going to take the time to actually build the plan, like lower incomes, like earlier kind of in life. And we kind of looked at that. And so this is a big ethical dilemma. We need to actually build planning software that can produce a plan for everyone. Uh, and, you know, everyone everyone should have access to, to knowing how to put their money into which registered account for future tax optimizations and whatnot. And, uh, and, and so we were kind of looking at each other going, okay, this is, this is probably going to cost like a million dollars and everything we've built has been kind of self-funded. Uh, so this would be like a new era of, of startup, um, you know, uh, like take, taking it kind of seriously. <laughs> so, so it took a little while and we did a couple other companies. I helped my buddy start like a, a power refund company and, and built that was the, the private lessons company came after that. And, and, but we couldn't, like, I couldn't shake this idea. Like right when we first saw that kind of converting and seeing people wanting to know the answers to that, like, I remember saying to Scott, like, this is the potential for a billion dollar company. Like this, this is really highly valuable. Um, but it, w- it would take us, uh, you know, some time before we were actually able to start raising money and, and putting that together. That wasn't until 2016, um, that we really started to, to kind of get it off the ground. And then, yeah, go ahead. Oh no! I was just going to say that there, there, there was definitely a lot of promise there because I know, you know, when all these robo advisors started coming out in the um, in in the U.S. at least, they were just automating, you know, investment management, and and advisors were saying, oh, you know, that's that's commoditized, we, you know, but we're we our value really rests on financial plannings, um, and that's not what this software is doing. Um, but uh, yours was, um, so, you know, that's sort of really the danger, I guess, where advisors could become, uh, disintermediated. So I don't know. And that was our original idea. Really. It was like, okay, we, we could automate the role of an advisor and, and yeah, we, we looked at robo advisors and said, this is, you know, maybe it's easy to get somebody to transfer in 5,000 bucks and, and play around with a robo advisor, but like nobody's going to transfer in their entire life savings. Um, like pre-retirement and and a good plan talks about not just investing it talks about insurance and protecting your family and it talks about debt management and when to refinance your mortgage it talks about optimizing that plan so like when you first make a plan when an advisor first makes a plan for the client the first thing they do is have a conversation about why the plan doesn't work and then they make suggestions like retire a little bit later or sell your house in retirement downsize like there's, there's a few different ways to kind of tweak a plan we needed to build like software that could do that. And so it was like, okay, can we, can we completely replace an advisor? And so that was like the original kind of super arrogant kind of idea that we were, we were chasing after. Very quickly, we found that the, if you could replace all the logic in the world and all the expertise in the world. The bulk of the decision to move forward with implementing a plan is emotional. And that isn't something that technology can replace just yet like we you know maybe it's just that we're not good enough right like we looked at airbnb has convinced you to sleep on a stranger's couch and uber you know gets you into the back car of a stranger and they do it without you know a human building that kind of relationship to get to get that level of trust so presumably you could do it with financial services but uh but i've come to realize over the last years of doing this that uh the the value of that human hand holding to really listen to people and understand where they're coming from and where they want to get to and, and the nuances around that I don't think people are going to 
trust purely trust technology with with like a whole scale plan anytime soon yeah you know i know so let's talk about uh plans well you know closing up shop and so i know in september 2019, a blog post came out accusing one of your co-founders of uh, sexual harassment of a fellow uh, or former Planswell employee, and you guys shut down in November 2019. And you know there are a lot of lot of allegations out there about how it went down, how it was handled. Um, you know the woman came forward publicly and, and told her story, but what was happening from where you sit behind closed doors? It's a really, yeah, so we, like the company itself was a struggle. So our initial business model was build out a mortgage brokerage, an insurance brokerage, and a robo-advisor and implement these plans. And then, like I was saying, that we quickly found that it required a lot of human touch. And so we had ended up building a huge team on the phones and, and it was, it was more of your typical kind of high burn, you know, tech cliche, uh, where we had to raise millions of dollars and cozy up to big strategic investors and, and so it was, it, we were constantly in a state of needs, needing to raise money and being basically out of money. It was very stressful. Mm. Mm. And so um, going into 2019, we were starting to pivot the model and expand internationally and test out these partnerships. Um, we had some pretty big partnerships already in play with big financial institutions. There was a lot of discussion about acquiring us, but it wasn't going to be like a glorious kind of acquisition. It was more like, you know, we needed too much money to be able to do this on our own kind of thing. Um, and so it was going into the fall of 2019 and the, and the round had been taking too long and it was it was complicated. We were trying to ra- raise a lot of money and, and there's a lot of com- competing kind of factors and, and companies that don't play well with other companies and that sort of thing. And yeah, that, that blog post came out about two weeks before um, closing on, on a bridge round to kind of get us through to hopefully get, you know, get the financing closed. And that was just like really, really bad timing for us. And I'm, I'm not certain that we would have closed the round had that not happened. Like it was, we were in kind of rough shape, but uh, we would have probably been acquired, uh, I, I would think, if that didn't hadn't have happened. But when you have all of these large financial brands that, you know, their stock swings more in a day than our company is worth, like it's uh, it's not, you know, worth them taking that kind of brand risk to be involved if, if there's like an uncertain kind of PR situation. But yeah, that's how the story came out. And that was quite an old story. It was over a year old at that time that that the blog post was written. Like both the people involved hadn't worked at our company in a year. We had already investigated the issue. We had already removed the parties involved. And uh, and that that time was like quite stressful going through that um, and learning how to deal with like an HR kind of crisis and, and investigations and third party investigators and lawyers and being transparent with investors all the way through and our team. Um, and it was nice on one hand that we had like a huge amount of support, um, and trying to learn how to best serve all the different parties involved and, and to do things fairly. But, uh, but yeah, then you have like nine or 10 months later, like trying to close around incredibly stressful situation. And, uh, and that, that kind of piled on a little bit, like the, the straw that kind of broke the camel's back. Um, in hindsight, how would you have approached it differently? I, there's not a huge amount we could have done differently. I think. When we were, when I was originally dealing with it back in January of 2019, when it first kind of surfaced on Twitter, and and we had never heard of this issue before, this relationship, and we started doing this investigation, I was in a really tricky position because I was friends with both parties involved, and uh, and so I I was trying to figure out, you know, what was 
going on? Like, what's happening here? Why, why, why is there cryptic tweets showing up on the internet? That like, it was just very confusing to me. And and I was trying to like do what I do and trying to make everybody happy and trying to help everybody and 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 figure out what's in everybody else's best interests. And and uh, and so I ended up having like kind of running point on the I guess you could call it an investigation originally, um, and very quickly kind of realized that this is not going to be. Um, like there's no there's no clear or easy resol- resolution here where everyone's just going to be completely satisfied and uh, and and it's actually like quite a risky thing to be doing to be kind of managing an investigation myself especially if I'm you know biased by both parties like being you know both both people had directly reported to me for years in one on ones and they they didn't work with each other but uh, they're different department kind of leads but um, so yeah we hired a third party so I, I would have hired the third party sooner like if, if this were to happen again I would hire a third party like immediately and I would really kind of remove myself to not get, get too involved but it's it's, it's so it's so tricky but I, I, I'm proud of how we handled it like we were very transparent with everybody involved and, and I thought we were very fair about how we went about our investigation and there, it was in the end there was not there was really nothing we could do for for either kind of party because neither of them worked at our company anymore and it was uh it wasn't really even ever clear of like what anybody wanted, but uh, um, I think we did right by our team and, and the rest of the company. We had, we, we, we had like a really good culture um, in our company. Like I, I've, you know, I got four kids and one of our other co-founders was a Mormon. Like it was, it wasn't like that, the kind of party vibe that you hear about and the, the, the tech cliches and the bro cultures and stuff like it was, it was a really good, good environment. We, we invested a lot in the team. We had budgets for um, like group activities and stuff to, to, create the, the feeling of inclusivity amongst smaller groups of people and uh and i think after that we we did kind of like we had actually in the month before that first came out done um like our whole rewrite of our code of conduct and our workplace policies and whatnot and and really kind of leaned into that had pizza dinners with the whole team and community kind of like town halls to discuss like what we expect of each other and after that event like we, we did more training on it which i thought was really interesting like we had training for people in leadership and management and the whole company and like brought in um like third parties to do that and learned a lot about like a lot of the, the stuff i think most people found was interesting was like case study stuff on like what other claims had, had resulted in and, and the risks to different parties and stuff but uh but yeah it was definitely a learning experience going through that for sure yeah, it's a tricky situation. Um, how how hard is it to you know sort of create something new now with the some of the perceptions that are out there? So so when we shut it down at the end of 2019, um, I think it was, I think it's just a it's a miracle like that we have this company now. <laughs> it's, it's amazing. We we went in and and we had the opportunity to bid on the assets and it was it was public and there was five companies that went and bid on the the. It was really just the brand and the technology. Nobody wanted the brand at the time for sure, but people wanted the like the two hundred thousand financial plans we had built, like the client lists and stuff. And and it was I wasn't even sure if they like what they'd be able to do with that from a privacy standpoint. But some people wanted the technology, and and we were kind of looking at it, going, I think this, I think we could partner with advisors. We had never generated a dollar in revenue from an advisor, but we were pretty confident that it worked really well. We had kind of proven out a system to serve people and to create value through financial planning, and. Uh, so we went in and we bid on it. We ended up uh, winning the, the kind of the auction as a surprise. Actually, we really didn't think we were going to succeed. We actually started, uh, we were going to build another company and started to work on a new brand and whatnot. And then, uh, and so we won that. And so early 2020, there's really three of us, Craig, our, our head of engineering, Scott, my co-founder, 
kind of operations and technology and, and myself are kind of looking at each other. Like, what, what do you do now? Um, probably it's not going to be so easy to raise money in this moment. And so we have to, we have to kind of bootstrap it and we're like back to square one. And, and it was, uh, April, it was the, the day that the pandemic was announced by the world health organization was the day that we were going to launch. And, uh, and it was like, okay, we should, we should wait. And then I, like a, a week goes by and we're like, well, what are we going to wait for? <laughs> like we, let's just launch. And so, so we launched it and, uh, and I get on the phones talking to advisors and kind of sharing like a vision of, of what we could do together. And, and it, it was like remarkably easy to get people excited about serving people and assisting them with their financial plans. And uh, um, we were able to scale up like quite quickly without needing financing. And like we, we raised a few hundred thousand dollars from some friends and kind of former investors. Um, but we were, we were able to do um, some pretty awesome things without needing millions of dollars. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, obviously you're going after advisors uh, this time around, um, but what are some of the other things that you are doing differently with the new plan as well? Well, so we had made the decision back in January 2020 to be a remote company. Like I had been kind of interested in this before I was like, before I was like your typical kind of, uh, I don't know if it's typical, but a lot of CEOs are like pretty against work from home. I remember thinking, oh, you want to take a work from home day. Cool. So you're just going to like watch Netflix and chill at home. Like that was definitely what I thought in the back of my head. Um, And so I got kind of interested when I found out that there were companies that were purely remote. Um, and I think part of what got me excited about that was like our last office was $55,000 a month in rent. <laughs> so oh it's like, you know, we, downtown Toronto uh, is not the place to be. And so <laughs> I'd been reading books and stuff. So we had, we had a, like a, you know, a bit of a head start on, on everybody else when it came to remote work. And so that's, that's a huge difference in our culture. And we had a conversation with the team in and around June of 2020. And we said at that point, it was like 10 of us. Um, and everybody, they, we would all just come back from the old company, basically, and people were excited to, to do this again. And we had a conversation. I remember being like, okay, like, you know, we're all in Toronto here. Like, we could we could make a plan to get an office space when the pandemic is over. Um, but we were running the numbers. And if you put that budget towards travel, like, the whole company can travel every two to three months to an exotic place for, like, a week or, like, a conference mm. or whatever. Like, what would you rather do? And it was, like, a rhetorical question. So it's like... Yeah. <laughs> So that, yeah. Yeah. And I mean, it seems like, you know, going back to saying that you guys launched it right in the middle of the pandemic or right at the, you know, the beginning of the pandemic, it seems like a lot of people have needed more financial guidance, um, you know, in the pandemic. I think so it seems like it might have been a good time to, to it, go to yeah. market or maybe, I don't know. It was a good time for sure. People are sitting at home. In the lockdowns, scrolling through Facebook, and <laughs> so like they're looking for things to do, and so I think it was helpful to um, to be able to approach people and say, "Hey, do you want to you know figure out when you get to retire in the next three minutes? Like <laughs> answer some questions yeah. and build a plan." Like I think it became easy to attract people, and then the same thing with advisors, where it's like, "Oh, like you can't go to your you know the library that you booked to you know talk to people from church about financial planning, like." we can assist you in, in remote financial planning. We've been doing it for five years. We're, we're like the experts on remotely onboarding people through a financial planning process. Like you want to see how that works? Like, yeah, it was, it was a really good environment to be building this business for sure. Yeah. How do you think, uh, you know, all these experiences that you've had shape who you are today and the work that you're doing today? 
That's a good question. I think I, I have had some good, you know, therapeutic opportunity to reflect on my life through through LinkedIn posting, and mostly in 2018 and 19, I think over 70 million people read uh, some of these posts, and and they were kind of stories about failure and, and kind of overcoming it, and uh, and having this kind of mindset around. Um, it's uh, like disassociating, I guess, to a certain extent with like the emotion of failure. It's more like, okay, this is like an interesting experience. Like I had a mantra and when the company was going down in that like kind of four week period in 2019 that I used to tell myself like, you know, I'm, I'm very grateful to be able to experience this. Most people in the world would never get to experience this. And I'm confident that this is going to lead to better things in the future. And, and I'm going to be better because of this experience. And that's a and that was like an honest mindset. I wasn't just like lying to myself, but like, I think most people would have a hard time with that. And that comes from practice at failing at a lot of things and trying a lot of things that ended up not working. And, and each time you kind of learn, but, uh, but I, the thing that I've kind of learned over the years is like, as long as you're focused on, on making sure that everybody else around you is happy and that you're serving people and that you're creating value for everybody involved. Um, and, and that like your own personal needs come last, um, you know, your own personal takeaways are going to be pretty awesome. Um, and you can sleep well at night. Like I, you know, I don't, uh, I don't have any enemies out there that I know of. So it's a, it's a pretty good environment to be playing around. Yeah. Well, I'm afraid we're just about out of time. I, uh, you know, could listen all, all day to, to your stories, Eric. Um, but I, I'd like to thank my guest, Eric Arnold for being on the podcast and, uh, open, opening up about his past. Eric, thank you so much for, for joining me today. Thanks, Diana. That was fun. Yeah, if, if you'd like to connect with Eric, you can find him on LinkedIn. And uh, we'll put a, a link in the show notes um, to his LinkedIn profile. If you yourself have a struggle and you wish to share your experiences and help others in similar situations, please feel free to reach out to me at Transparency with Diana B at gmail.com. I'd like to thank you for listening to Transparency with Diana B. If you've not subscribed to the podcast yet, please click the subscribe now button below. This is Diana Britton reminding you that where there's healing, there is hope. We'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to the Transparency with Diana B podcast. Click the subscribe button below to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guest and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of wealthmanagement.com. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional advice. Always seek the advice of your healthcare provider with any questions you have regarding your particular situation.